Welcome to How I Raised It, the podcast that goes behind the scenes with entrepreneurs who've raised capital. We uncover the tips, tricks, and techniques they use to get investors to write a check. Strap in and turn it up. Hi, welcome to another episode of How I Raised It. Today I have Andy Lowry, CEO of Realware, coming to us from Vancouver, Washington. Uh, how's your day going, Andy? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. It's a Tuesday, but like we talked earlier before the show, it feels a bit like a Monday. So <laughs> for both of us, I think today. <laughs> it does, it does. Um, I'll brag for a second. I actually took off yesterday and went up skiing at Heavenly, my, own, my only my second ski day of the year. So it was a good Monday, kind of a yeah. crazy Tuesday. <laughs> well, now it makes sense why you're saying Tuesday's Monday for you. <laughs> anyway. I think I just have two Mondays. I had a Monday, and now this is my second Monday. So <laughs> Second Monday, uh, right. yes, right. it happens. Awesome. So what? tell us about Realware. What is Realware, and uh, where would you come up with the idea for this business? Sure. Um, Realware is a wearable computer company. Uh, we are focused on building wearable computers for industry, enterprise, business, um, and therefore have uh, certain requirements that exist above and beyond what a consumer wearable computer might have. Uh, I came up with the idea actually from my first startup, which was called Daiquiri. It was an industrial augmented reality company that did software and hardware products focused more around immersive augmented reality uh, which is a different type. A HoloLens by Microsoft kind of uses this almost virtual reality landscape view of the world and overlays that digital layer over real world. What we do at Realware is a little bit, uh, you could call it simpler in a way. Um, we make a wearable Android tablet, so to speak. It's not shaped like a tablet. Don't think of it that way. Instead, it clips onto a hard helmet, a baseball cap, bump cap, anything you might wear on your head, and it fixes itself to that. So uh, you've got a computer there and a monocular heads-up display, so single-eye heads-up display that is your uh, kind of visual um, uh, screen, and then you communicate with the device via voice. And how I came up with this idea uh, was twofold. Uh, the first way was by experiencing Daiquiri and, and where the market was at and what applications were most interesting to enterprise, I realized that the system that actually was being demanded in the space was much simpler uh, than a immersive augmented reality. They were looking for in situ telepresence video conferencing. They were looking for simple PDF viewing and work instructions and mm -hmm. things of that nature. And so because industry was ready for that and, and very primed to receive that type of functionality, I looked towards after Daiquiri, a company and a product uh, that fit that form, fit and function. And I came upon uh, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Chris Parkinson, who had spent about a decade at a company called Copen, uh, developing in R&D a system called the GoldenEye. And the GoldenEye system, which was a wearable computer that was first invented in 2008 and stood through many iterations over the last decade, and then finally found its way into a spin-out R&D group that then asked me to come on as the CEO, raise money, get us capitalized, put us into commercial high-rate manufacturing and production, and then go to market. And so originally was concepted at this display company called Copen, spun out of Copen, 
merged that company with a commercialization group that came out of another company called Sonine Technologies, put my leadership in charge, and then did the heavy lifting of raising capital, which I guess is the main gist of the show. So we'll get into how that went as well, I'm sure. Okay, interesting. But so your customers, uh, if I understand it correctly, would be like construction workers, foremen, uh, you know, that type of, or who, who are you selling to? Who are your customers? Yeah. So it's interesting because the industry is fairly agnostic. So we're selling to anyone from Shell, uh, Exxon, to retail companies like Walmart, to um, uh, energy companies like Duke Energy and Ameren, uh, clear around the horn back to construction companies, as you said, like Skanska and Otis and some other folks like that. So just a wide plethora of people. And you say, wow, you're not very focused. Well, one is we're selling computers and computers go anywhere. And the number one solution or use case is just taking an expert that may not be in situ and being able to pipe them in and see what the work worker is seeing and look through his or her eyes, see what the person's doing, and then coach mm -hmm. them through a sequence of steps in order to complete a maintenance procedure or some sort of difficult task that they may not have the training for. I, I like to say there's a scene in the Matrix that maybe a lot of your viewers have seen Matrix where Neo and Trinity are on the roof. And he looks over at this helicopter, this Black Hawk helicopter or whatnot. I'm not sure what type it was. And says, can you fly one of those? And Trinity says, I can't right now, but give me a second. And then they <laughs> upload the program to her head and she's off and flying. Our system is like our 2017 version of that kind of a knowledge transfer platform where you're getting people to come in situ with you and say, here's how you repair this. Here's how you fix this system. Um, and then maybe in the future when Elon Musk is flying to Mars, the astronauts on board and the Voyagers on board will have realware uh, systems that will be more like the Trinity make matrix system where you can just upload a program to your brain and instantly have the both mechanical and uh, uh, knowledge to fly something like that. Cool stuff. And so the, it's, you know, do you get compared to Google Glass, but with a, a few more real world applications? Is that kind of a a fair analogy or? or yeah, I, I would say glass in a lot of spaces is a competitor. I, I mean, when you're talking logistics and warehouses, indoor use, uh, those types of applications, which we do find ourselves in, are very well suited for us. Glass, there's another company, View6, out there. Uh, I don't view the competition as, as strong competition. It's more like competimates. Um, we're all in this nascent market together, and there's room for many, many different kind of stratified computer companies, I think, to pop out and be successful. Um, however, comma, uh, there are applications that Musix and, uh, and Glass, certainly Glass, uh, can't go into. And they can't go into oil refineries because they don't have the proper certifications. They can't go at heights outdoors, at sea. They're not rugged, they're not waterproof, they're not weatherproof. And uh, moreover, because we've chosen a slightly different form factor where we're not resting on the bridge of the nose, uh, we're mounted to a hard helmet or a baseball cap. In that way of mounting, we can extend our weight to a lot larger of a weight. We have about a three quarters of a pound system versus 50 grams, which is just a fraction, a fraction of a pound. Mm. And in order to be comfortable for all day use on the bridge of the nose, glass needs to be very lightweight. And be by, by being lightweight, they can have a smaller processor, smaller memory, smaller battery, all of these things we can improve upon because we're allowed to increase our size, weight, and power consumption of our device 
by the different form factor and industrial design. Got it. Okay, cool. And so I assume there's a camera on the front of the piece, a speaker in the ear, and so you're like I like that example of inserting the expert, you know, in the situation where I'm a I'm a junior level oil oil rig worker. <laughs> this is exactly. probably a terrible example, but you know, someone someone who's on on shore it's, can coach me through how to stop a a leak or it's something. A, it's actually an amazing example. It's not a terrible example at all. Think about an oil platform in the Gulf of Mexico, okay? When a pump breaks and oil goes down, they quit pumping, it takes on average 12 days to get that recovery done. And a lot of that is logistics. A lot of that is getting a guy on an airplane, getting him on a boat, getting him to the oil platform, troubleshooting him through the sequence of steps that get the pump up and running again. If you could curtail that travel by taking the expert that's sitting in Houston and just dial them in to the folks out on the oil platform, walk them through a procedure to get the oil platform up and running. A lot of people don't know this. An oil platform does a million dollars a day in revenue, mm. $1 million a day in revenue. And on the average, it goes down when it does go down for 12 days. If you can reduce that by two days, you've all of a sudden made the oil company two more million dollars in revenue. This isn't process improvement or cost cutting. This is improving the top line by upwards to two, three, four million dollars, depending on the number of days that you could cut off the overall sequence of maintenance. Yeah. So it's a great example, and it's something that we're actually right now doing with companies like NOV, National Oil Well Varco, which has got this exact same use case that you just described, and they're deploying it today. Okay, I got lucky with a the guest there. Um, interesting. Okay, cool. Let's talk about. Um how you financed this. So uh, how long have you guys been around and, and how did you get this thing off the ground in its early days? Did you use your own savings or bootstrap, angel round? Yep. So um, it was interesting. So I, I came into it after doing uh, the Daiquiri startup and that one came to me a little bit more as uh, up on a platter. You know, my partner, Brian Mullins, had raised the first round of the money and then we had a nice line of credit from our investor that we continued to draw upon. So that wasn't the tough Herculean effort of raising money from a start from scratch. But I can say with a surety that this round has been the classic Elon Musk drag through glass, stare into the abyss type of uh, endeavor. Uh, it's been tough. It's been really tough. And anyone coming into it should know this in advance. This is not for uh, the, uh, the weak of spirit. Uh, you have to have a, a very, very strong uh, a sense of persistence, not a, you know, as folks know in the audience, you know, one or 2% of all companies that start out with an idea ever get funded in the first place. And of that, uh, a significant portion of those fail in, in the course, uh, between a and B and, and through the course of their rounds. So to get going is a, is a rare thing. Um, but it is a, something that you can increase your odds and increase your chances by that persistence, by that hard work. Um, by flexibility and in, in the way you structure your your raising of your money and so on and so on. So when I started, I uh, started originally bootstrap. We originally started not paying ourselves salary, paying off for, you know, so, uh, working on our own savings, uh, small amounts of initial design and concepting work that didn't require a lot of capital. And so we put in our own capital money to kind of get us started. And then I went to a very unique uh, uh, situation. I went over to China and I got very well involved in this, these initiatives that you're hearing about China becoming more and more prevalent in investing. And so I received a loan from a Chinese investor named Realmax 
in the early stages of the company that allowed me to get going. Now, those lo loans were put in exchange for some warrants and some other things like that. So we, we made some, some ideas and some deals with these guys in order so that when I got to my round A, they would be covered for some sort of an equity buy. But a, the original sort of uh, uh, idea came out of, uh, out of China. And, and there is this concept in China right now that President Xi has initiated that they're looking for Western companies willing to partner in design with Chinese engineers manufacture their devices in situ China, in, in, in contract manufacture in China, and then open the Chinese market to said invention or technology. Because we're an industrially an industrial focused company, China was very interested in being able to use some of their state enterprises as test beds and as uh, customers for our particular device. So it made a lot of sense for this company, RealMax, who is backed by in turn SDIC, State Development Investment Corporation, which is a sovereign wealth fund in China, uh, put that money into them who put some money into us. And so uh, they became sort of, when we get to the Series A, a large benefactor. Now, with China, it's as hard as anything because they have a very different sort of outlook, different business practices, different sorts of rules, and you're finding a lot of different situations that you wouldn't encounter in the U.S. So in the midst of us raising money in China, I found myself out of money. I found myself in a position where the China money had run out. I still had my operational budget to go off and get. I went out to a series of investors. I asked for some money, uh, negotiation, negotiation, negotiation uh, to the extreme. Couldn't find anyone that I was willing to uh, come to terms with. So I went to family and friends. It was at that point where I opened up sort of another convertible note round where I allowed family to participate, friends to participate, and even employees at the time of the company to participate. So we self-funded ourselves through fans, fr family, friends, and employees that were working at mm. the company that believed in the vision. And we did that over the course of the next subsequent year. Okay, this story started in 2016 and now we're into 2017. About halfway through 2017, after funding ourselves through about two and a half to three million dollars of vendor debt and an additional four or five million dollars in convertible notes, mm. we basically uh, found our, our lead investor. And this lead investor is known as a gentleman by the name of Kenneth Peterson, who's the CEO and founder of a, of a company called uh, Columbia Venture Corporation right here in southwest Washington. And so he became very bullish about the idea of supporting us since he was a prior industrialist, someone that was in the aluminum industry, understood the space backwards and forward, then understood the value of a wearable computer in not only his space, but a whole plethora of different spaces. So became very enthusiastic to become our lead investor, um, took us under his wing. Uh, we brought in also the Chinese investor that I had for mentioned. And by the way, if, if readers want to read a little bit more about that, there's a Crunchbase article that you can search for that talks about this journey with SDIC, uh, with China, and how I kind of forged a lot of new territory that had mm. not previously been done before. Okay. And that's something else that you need to do as an investor. You need to find creative ways, because if you look at what's going on in Sand Hill Road to a large uh, degree, they're very almost actuarial in their way that they do investments nowadays. Mm. They say, what stage are you? How much are you looking to raise? Okay, from there, I'll calculate everything I need to calculate. I get 
35 to 45 percent of the company based upon this valuation and this much money. And then you say, well, wait a minute. I have some uniqueness to my story. Let, let, let me tell you why it's unique. And they they largely go, you know, sorry, we, we don't do we don't do unique. You know, we do standard by the book types of things where RLPs are expecting this type of investment to look like this, this second investment to look like that, the third investment to look like that. And unless you follow fairly closely to that sort of uh, pattern that, yeah. that they're used to dealing with, it's tough. It, it's really, really tough. Uh, private equity is different. Private equity does look at the company more individualistic versus as a kind of aggregate. But venture capital is very, very uh, clustering in their mind. They, they cluster you into groups of people that they can kind of understand and expect to get the same kinds of percentages for the same kind of investments, more or less, within some sort of statistical process variation, uh, again and again and again in each company that they place their bets behind. Yeah, whew, interesting, good stuff. Um, I want to kind of delve into a couple pieces that you touched on there. Um, so let's almost take it, I guess, in somewhat chronic steps. Steps. Um, yeah. yeah. Four and a half million from friends and family and employees. That's an impressive amount. I've never heard anyone raise that much from from friends and family and employees. Um, was that just a, kind of a rolling, you know, a rolling uh, uh, convertible note that you were raising on, or how do you how that kind yeah. of come together? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. It was rolling. And, and so each month, I mean, and people uh, hear my story, they go, how did you do that? And, and I wouldn't recommend it. You know, <laughs> I, I got married at 19 and my wife's 18. I've been married 26 years. We're going on 27 years. But if someone came to me and said, should I marry at 19? I'd say, I don't recommend it. Uh -huh. <laughs> Not that it didn't work out for me. I just don't generally recommend it. Now, I basically raised my operational budget real time. Each month, I would need $300,000. I would raise that $300,000 that month. Next month, I needed 250. Raise that 250,000. I did that for nearly 18 months straight, where I was raising between 200 to $400,000 a month, every single solitary month, every single investor pitch. It was excruciating. It was like the stress. You know, I never missed a payroll, never missed a single check uh, to anyone that was working for us. And I did it, though, on the back of month to month to month, raising the operational budgets or whatever um, as they came along, you know, as it came along or as it presented itself each month uh, as we went on. So Interesting. Okay. Work. Yeah, no, that's good. I have a the guy I went skiing with yesterday is sort of doing that a little bit as we speak. I, every time I talk to him, he's always... Got 600k in the bank and and 559k in payroll expense coming up, kind of thing. <laughs> oh, I know the feeling. I mean, I've got, I had gone down. You know, when I got this place, we have a beautiful office here in Vancouver. It's an old uh, artillery barracks that was renovated by the city, and I signed an LO. And the rent for us is, you know, uh, 20k a month or so. We've got about 12 or 13,000 square feet. Uh, when I put the LOI together for that uh, and I signed that and, and you know, I'm, I'm scared that Mike True is going to hear this podcast and go, what? You know, but when I signed that LOI, I think I had six thousand dollars in our bank account. Yeah. But I knew that I was going to be able to raise that money. I just knew it. <laughs> and one thing that you have to be as a CEO of an entrepreneurial, you have to believe. 
you ha- there is no room not to believe. You have to believe <laughs> every single day that you can accomplish this. And if you falter or waver, even in the slightest, it's probably the end of the rope. It's probably the end of the rope at that point. So it's a very yeah. important element. I heard something kind of on that same general thesis lately. Very recently, someone was talking about, you know, having no optionality, burning the boats, right? Kind of approach to entrepreneurship that if you're, if you have the option of going back to Google or wherever you worked before, then that's always in the back of your head. Like having no optionality is, is what you need, right? <laughs> so, well, yeah. I'll tell you, I, I borrowed in convertible notes a million dollars from my aunts and uncles and stuff like that. Wow. And I'm thinking about those uh, reunions that I'd have yeah. to go to if I ended up belly up. It became no optionality for me. And halfway through it, I just said to myself, holy cow, being a CEO of a startup is one of the hardest jobs in my life. I could be much easier life going back to Raytheon or some defense contractor where I would just work in an executive position, make a lot of money, do good work. And then I said to myself, well, I can't do that. You know, it just, there is no choice. I have to keep plunging forward. I've got 50 people that I'm paying payroll to with kids, benefits. I have my aunts and friends and family that have put money into this organization. I had to win and I have to win still. To this day, I have to win. You have to be in that (laughs) mode to be successful in this hard world. Good. Okay. So now let's go to China again. So how did you dis- come up with this idea of going and trying to raise money in China or, or were they approaching you? Like how I wouldn't even, or is it because you're in the hardware space and your manufacturing was going to happen there anyway? Like how does that idea come to you? And, and yeah. yeah. So it, 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 again, it, it came through connections and, and a lot of this world, uh, you know, people say, Hey, internet's taking everything and pulling connections and, and close, you know, close friendships out of the equation. And I'm here to tell you, it's not true. I mean, a lot of how the world still runs is through quote, close interpersonal connections. I, I had a friend, uh, that I had met who was at a competitive company to Daiquiri, my first startup called Matayo. Matayo is a German-based augmented reality company that was sold to Apple. And mm-hmm. when they sold that company to Apple, uh, they dismissed their head of Asia-Pac sales. His name's Sonny Shin. Sonny is a dear now, now a very dear, dear friend of mine and someone that I would consider family uh, as much as a friend. And Sonny had come to me in the midst of me trying to raise money and said, Andy, Matayo's no more and you're gone from Daiquiri. Why don't we do something together? When I showed him the idea of the wearable computer called the GoldenEye, and I said, I'm looking to raise money, he said, come to China. Through my network, I think I can get you seed money to start, and potentially even the whole entire A round. So went to China with him with the GoldenEye. I extended some trust, okay? Mm -hmm. And there's a scene in this new Superman, the reboot of the Superman movie. I got a lot of superhero analogies (laughs) because I like, like those types of analogies, I guess. But the Man of Steel, where there's a point in the movie where Earth had turned on him, the, his alien enemies uh, from Krypton or wherever was coming to get him, and he looked at this preacher that was in the church, and the preacher told him, look, Superman, or look, Clark Kent, or whatever, you know, sometimes with trust, someone has to take the leap of faith. And so, largely with China, I took a leap of faith. I said, I have to believe China's different. I have to believe they're not here to rip me off. I have to believe that the idea of the country is changing. Mm. And with that changing, there's opportunity. There's opportunity to make a truly global company that has technology both in the Western world and in China that can rise up together. 
versus them copying something and taking it under a different name, making their own version of it. This is a type of company that I'm trying to do in parallel and have government officials and everyone else wear the HMT-1 and be proud of the HMT-1 just as much of a China product HMT1, as a U.S. Uh, product. Define oh, that I'm real sorry. quick. That, yeah, that's head-mounted tablet. That's the name oh, of our okay. product. Okay. Uh, that's our main product, our wearable computer, HMT-1. Sorry Got about it. that. No worries. Um, okay, great. And, and how much was it did you raise in, in the loan and warrants uh, in China? So – uh, the loan money and stuff like that um, amounted to about $2 million in total loans and then about uh, $2.5 million in different vendor debt in China. So all in total, about $4.5 million. And then, the, and then the balance came from friends and family, which was another $4 million or so. And that got us to where we are today with our Series A. Uh, just for anyone um, wanting to do a little more research did you say it was sdic was the uh state development investment investment Corp? corporation yep. uh, yeah yeah they're at wikipedia and an english website that they can look at a chinese english website that they could do research on okay and there's an article and and there's an article in crunchbase i, I would tell your viewers or your listeners to look at uh, crunchbase and search realware crunchbase they'll see this great article written by jason uh, there at Crunchbase, uh, a staff report, fantastically written article that documents the journey a little bit more detailed. Do you think, um, I want to get to the Series A because that's pretty interesting, but a little more in China. Do you yep. think this is, a, you know, kind of like a, <laughs> you wouldn't recommend people marrying their, their high school sweetheart, but do you recommend <laughs> hardware startups to pursue this path? Would you do this again? Or was it unique to your circumstance, you know? Other hardware startups, earlier stage, should they pursue Chinese investors? What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I would, I would, I would recommend. Uh, okay, so the, uh, I don't say I don't recommend marrying your high school sweetheart. I, I, I maybe not recommend at age nineteen, but I got lucky. You know, mm -hmm. I do. I would. I don't regret it for a second. What I did, I got lucky, and in China, I also got lucky. I got into the right groups and the right ethical organizations within China that do things above board. And that's not to say with 1.4 billion people, there aren't still unethical elements in China and unethical investors in China. So yes, I absolutely recommend hardware companies looking towards China as this new paradigm of how to uh, globalize how to get investment from overseas and open up markets for themselves overseas. But at the same time, I would do so very carefully. And I would look for advice or advisors like myself, for example, that can help um, separate the wrong from the right, the good from the bad. And, and, and it's very, very important to come in with a lot of knowledgeable people uh, that won't steer you wrong, that have your trust and everything else. If you go in it sort of just without a clue, without a plan, there is a lot of people that'll still rip you off over there. So you gotta be careful, but if you take the right care and you go the right approach, there is a lot of value that China can have both as an investor and as a large market for global companies. Is the biggest risk still just IP theft or, or or are there other things that, like, what are the, the biggest top three landmines or, or pitfalls for companies, you know, still to be cognizant of? Um, one, I would say uh, the culture says yes. It doesn't matter if the answer is no or yes. The answer is yes. Uh, 
So they're always leading with a yes. So the first thing, culturally speaking, in America, we're much more uh, prone to say no when we mean no, or even if it's maybe, we'll say no, but we'll see. China leads with yes, and then they follow up with sometimes it being yes and sometimes it being yes but or no. And so you have to be careful that yes means yes in China, and yes isn't just them saving face or doing something in that regard. That would be the first landmine that I would say. Uh, the second landmine that I would say over there is the policy and the procedure, which is always changing. It's changing month to month to month to month. They get a new person in charge of something, changes policies. And sometimes the banks and the people in China don't even know what the latest policy and procedure yeah. is. So it's absolutely mind boggling. So be prepared for an ever changing landscape, an ever changing dynamic, something that you're going to have to duck and move and jive around in order to get uh, through it all and have a lot of patience, a lot of, oh, that form wasn't done exactly right. Do it again, do it again, do it again. So that would be the second kind of uh, landmine. And then the third landmine is for consumer-orientated products especially, yes, be careful of what they do and do better than anyone else in the world, and that's to take good technology and make Chinese versions of it. And so if you are a consumer-orientated company, especially you need to take care I am an industrial orientated company and large industries in China are controlled by the government. And President Xi is very strict, very strict indeed on bribery, on IP protection, on these things, because he understands in order to be a superpower and a world leader, he has to get there. And so he's starting with government, what he can control. And I would say, if you're dealing with most government agencies, you're safe as safe as you could be, you know, in China. You're as safe as you can be. And so I am afforded a little bit more flexibility, a little more confidence that my IP isn't going to get stolen because I'm backed by one of those government agencies and they protect their mm. own type of a thing. So yeah. I've got a little bit of a different situation than a consumer product. Okay, great. All right. I don't want to keep you too long. So let's get, let's move forward to the Series A, talk about that a little bit more. So this was a big Series A, 17 million, correct? Yep, 17 and, and authorized up to 21. So we still have four more million available. We have some lead candidates for that. But uh, we did a rolling Series A where we did one $17 million close and then kept $4 million open for strategic followers. Great. And so Columbia, uh, Columbia Ventures uh, took the whole thing, or was this a syndicate led by them? or? It it was a syndicate uh, split between uh, Columbia Ventures and RealMax, which is the front company for SDIC. So SDIC uh, contributed uh, about 40% of the overall amount, and uh, um, Columbia Ventures contributed 60%. Okay, so how did you how did you identify Columbia Ventures? Right, they're they're in Washington. Uh, I've never heard of them. That doesn't mean anything. But um, yeah. <laughs> you know, how did you come across? Kevin, right? He was an industrialist. How did you find him? Ken, Ken is... Kenneth. Yeah, Kenneth Peterson. Kenneth, yeah. So we found him by way of a of a of a technology meetup, believe it or not. And it it you know these are the things that that 
that persistence uh, pays off, you know, hitting these different events and regional events. If you're not in Silicon Valley, you know, go to your own local regional meetups and things. We went to a regional meetup here in Portland. It actually not even me. It was one of the folks that worked for me. And because I have sort of transparency in my startup and because people all know what the overall goals and mission are, he brought up the fact, yeah, we, we do have a couple candidates for Series A, but they're abroad, they're in Europe, they're in the Middle East. And as we were closing down on negotiations with those two, uh, this young man in my group found this other fellow by the name of Stan Hanks that was working for Ken Peterson and said, I think Ken would be really, really interested in this. And uh, coincident, as it presented itself, he had just had a large exit from another telecom company that he had invested in, had some uh, capital ready for deployment and brought me in and made a meeting with me and worked through all of this. Now, he was pretty private equity orientated and he was able to look at us as a unique example versus sort of aggregating us in this actuarial style that I talked about a lot of times happens in Sand Hill Road in early stage companies. He was able to look at us as a unique sort of situation. And as we began to talk with him, as we began to pull out sort of more and more uh, information, or he was able to pull out more and more information, he became more and more and more a believer. And the longer folks work with us side by side, the more they believe we will be the, the dominant wearable computer company, at least as enterprise and industry uh, focused in any company. And, and so as he began to believe, he got more and more warm on the idea of leading the round. Of course, we had a long subsequent negotiation took four or five months to get through the terms and everything else. And in that process, uh, we established a closer and closer bond and closed down on the round, uh, in January. So it was, uh, that's what happened just in this last January. Yeah. Great. January, 2018. Just if, uh, yep. anyone ever listens to this is in the future or something. Um, yep. so four or five months during that time, you know, while you're negotiating during that time where you, actively talking to a lot of other folks, uh, a lot of other firms, were you running like a process or, you know, did you kind of get deep in? Yeah. In, yeah. Yeah. I got it. We, <laughs> we ran a full sort of sales pipeline process where we had about 70 uh, investors in our queue uh, at any one time that expressed some sort of mild to strong interest. We had about four uh, companies that uh, various companies that we had gone through a diligence process with, I had no told me told to me a hundred times over a uh, hundred no's uh, that fell out of uh, of the process. Uh, I mean, and that's just an estimate. It could be more than that. It, it just it just takes so much effort to get money invested in your company, and it's really no insult every time they say no. You shouldn't think of it as an insult to your endeavor. You should think of it as. Uh, just this 1%, you know, this 1% yes. And once you get the one sale, that's all the sales you get. So it's a tough endeavor. We ran it like a pipeline process, though. We managed it like a pipeline process. Uh, we had, at the time, two or three others. But I'll warn the listeners out there, when you get into someone that really, really is serious about investing, they're going to ask you to stop. They're going to ask you to stop trying to get other term sheets, stop doing other deals, they're going to want a blackout period where they have time to complete their diligence and then put a money in or don't put a money in, put mm -hmm. their money in or don't put their money in. If you think you're going to be able, only the most extreme of examples of startup companies actually have the luxury of saying, I've got six people, they're all competing on me, and I've got all these different things, and I'm keeping them all at bay. 
if that's actually a real thing, I don't know how to do it yet. So <laughs> somebody else is going to have to teach me how to get that much excitement because really the supply um, or the demand for money way outweighs the supply. And so uh, these investors can be very fickle, very, very fickle. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's blackout period or the the, uh, the lockup period, I think it's called sometimes too, is yeah. uh, interesting, uh, you know, because if at the end of that they don't write a check, that can just poison the well for everyone else sometimes, right? You know? Yeah. It's horrible because a lot of if you look at statistics, even on those lockout periods, um, you know, globally, they're 50 50, you know, they can go either way. Anything can perturb the deal. And so it's, you know, you're always on this razor edge when when you're doing uh, this first stages until you start getting revenue, until you start having sort of some sort of momentum, you're on a razor edge. I, I once told, somebody asked me what it's like, and for your listeners that have ever played these, um, um, uh, what are they called? Um, those uh, tower defense games where you have those creatures that just kind of march into your <laughs> tower. And the first, when you first start, you only have like $100 or whatever. You have to pick your, your guns exactly right and place them exactly right. Any mistake, you're dead, you're over with. But once you're up and running and you get going and you've got enough uh, guns out there, you can kind of just throw things out there. And it's not as important to pick exactly right. The first few days and first few years of a startup are the most critical uh, razor edge that you're walking on. And you have to be very, very quick, very agile and expectant that that if it could go wrong, it will go wrong. And you should just expect it. So. It's a tough deal, like they all say. So <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Okay, one more, one or two more quick questions. I'll let you go. When you were doing the Series A, you're getting you know deep down the path with with um, Columbia and a few others. Um, what were you pitching? Did you guys have revenue yet, or was it more market potential, the technology, IP? Like, what was in your pitch? What was the focus of your pitch? So um, you know what we. You know what we what we said to a lot of folks because we were trying to raise more and not give away the whole company to investors. Uh, we were saying we bootstrapped ourselves to a B. You know we're like early stage B. And for those that don't know it, seed is usually when product still needs to be developed. You get into A when you have a product developed and yet you're trying to hit a market. So when you're first in no market. And B is usually kind of land and expand. So you've proven yourself out in a singular market. Now you want to go global. Now you want to do sort of an expansion. And that's how they kind of think of it in, in Silicon Valley and other investor minds. Uh, we were raising an A because we hadn't done any prior, prior investment rounds. Yet we were much more closer akin to a late stage A or an early B because we were in mass production uh, we had certified in 35 countries globally. Yeah. We were trying to hit it all around the globe at the same time. Um, that was kind of our uh, model. That, that's how we thought we could get to scale as fast as humanly possible is going by that approach. And so in that way, we were sort of a late stage or a very large startup for an A round. And because of that, I had to pitch it as such. I said, there's no product risk anymore. We've proven it out in all of these market cases with all these pilots that we've run over the first year when we were in beta mode. And now it's time to kind of land and expand. And we have to build our marketing team and build our global sales team and so on and so on. So that was kind of the, the, the gist of the stage and where I was on the pit, on the pitch angle. Mm, interesting. Okay, great. Um, you know, any last uh, 
bits of advice or, or uh, things you'd want to tell yourself if you started all over again? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 tell, I tell anyone thinking about doing this that, first of all, one, we talked a lot about believe. You have to believe in yourself. You have to believe in your product. You have to believe in it. Uh, more than you've ever believed in anything before in your life. And, and that's a true fact. The second thing is, is there's an old Ernest Shackleton ad that you can look up on the internet and it's men wanted. And this was Ernest Shackleton was the explorer of Antarctica that, that first uh, explored Antarctica many, many years ago. And as he was in his old wood boats and stuff going to sail down in there, it was going to be treacherous, there was going to be icebergs, there was going to be a large likelihood they may not come back alive. And he put out an ad. He said, men wanted, you know, uh, uh, you know, dark day, you know, 24 hours of dark, you know, arduous conditions, horrible things, low pay, likelihood of survival, very, very low. But if you do survive, reward and recognition to follow, you know, type of a thing. And so he really was looking for these crazy sorts of people that really, really have this <laughs> unbelievable adventure in their mind, because anywhere in this modern world, that adventure exists still where people are slaying dragons, where people are taking down, um, uh, you know, cities and climbing mountains and all this other stuff. It's in this space. It's hmm. in this space of entrepreneurialism and especially global entrepreneurialism. It is an unbelievably fun adventure if you're of the adventurous type of a mindset. And so I encourage people that have adventure in their minds and souls to know that it's a hard job to be an adventurer, but this is our 21st way of, uh, 21st century way of going out and questing and, and, and conquering the dragon and bringing the dragon back to the door. So, so that's what I would say is kind of final thoughts. That's great. Yeah. I love that. I love that metaphor. It's, that's perfect. That's awesome. So last thing, um, if people want to learn more, it's just realware.com, correct? Yep. R E A L W E A R E A R. Like you wear something, not software. So uh, E A R realware.com. Uh, go to the website. There's a couple links on there. You can ask more information. Uh, look forward to your listeners checking out more about us. And, uh, you know, as people want to ask me about questions, I'm always willing to give a piece of advice or two. So <laughs> do you want to uh, do you want to make them find you be be hustle, be creative and hustle? Or do you want to share your email address? It's up to you. Yeah, it's pretty easy to figure out. I guess I'll share it. It's Andy at Realware, you know, but if you're coming in, it's often better to hit me on LinkedIn first um, because my email nowadays, here's another thing that maybe uh, uh, folks don't know out there that haven't hit an A yet. You file an A with the SEC and instantly 30% of your email box will be spam emails from people wanting to offer their services to you in one shape, form, or another, everything from HR to finance to whatever. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's overwhelming some days to get two or 300 emails in my box. So if I don't respond right away, maybe try me on LinkedIn on a message. And uh, that's the way I kind of relax in the evening and I chat with folks out in the space. So LinkedIn, which is just slash Andy Lowry, is my LinkedIn uh, uh, profile handle or whatever. And I have a Twitter account too, Andy Lowry. Um, as well. So folks can find me there. Okay. Perfect. Andy, cool. thank you. This was really fun. I appreciate it. And uh, I wish you the best. I look forward to seeing these wearables all over the place. So. All right, Nathan. Thank you very much. It's great talking to you. I look forward to talking to you in the future. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you, sir. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.